0: So if I could just add one thing to that, I would just say uh, anyone who knows Sonia or Brenda or the other folks who stood up in the room, I, you know, I really appreciate. There's a story in the Gospels about Jesus healing ten lepers, you know, and I don't know how many of you, probably probably not very many of you, have ever gotten to see a person with leprosy face to face. I have. Um, I got to see it in the country of India um, several years ago, and uh, it's just, I mean, it's everything you can imagine. It would be just flesh literally rotting off of folks, and bandages wrapped poorly around limbs that are now missing and faces scarred and it, it's really terrible and, and so there's a story in the scripture about jesus healing 10 lepers and 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 then basically you know the 10 people are like we're healed from leprosy i mean this is incredible right and they they all go w- running away and, and only one right only one out of 10 the bible says comes back to actually glorify jesus right to thank him for what he's done that's a 10 percent return it's a pretty sad return right and what I appreciate, and, and even an answer to some of Eric's uh, questions about, you know, where are we going with all this, and what are we going to do with all this, a, a part of it is that returning, right? That returning to Christ to say, man, God has done this great thing in my life, and, and now I'm going to give him the glory and the praise and the honor for it, right? And I'm going to let other people know, hey, Jesus Christ has healed me, right? Like, God has done this work in my life. And, and anyone who knows these folks who stood up, they know, man, they are so quick, right, to give the reason for why they're walking a whole lot lighter these days, right? I mean, I work in a cubicle right next to Brenda, and I think every day somebody visits her cubicle, right? And she's just testifying about the things that God's doing in her life, and so um, that's really what it's all about, right? It's about getting that healing, experiencing that healing, and then leading others to that place as well. And so um, this morning we're gonna we're gonna talk about that a little bit in relationship to where we're going uh, with the message in in the series of Joshua. So uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter five because that's where we're gonna be in just a second. But um, Today we kind of get to the central story of Joshua, right? And it happens pretty early on in the book, but it's the story of the battle at Jericho, right? And so some of you who grew up in the church or, or grew up attending vacation Bible school with a parent or grandparent or whatever, um, or friend down the street, you remember the song, right? Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling there you go. All right, so that's, that's the song, right? And so I want to kind of give you a little bit of context about Jericho. So Jericho is supposedly, and I don't know how you would even prove this, but it, but it really is out there as being the oldest city in the world, okay? Because Jericho still exists today, all right? And so there, are, uh, there is evidence, right, that they have uncovered that, that shows that Jericho has existed. It can be traced all the way back to the ninth century B.C., right? So, I mean, that's old, right? It's older than Mark Rowland, all right? It's older than most of us here. It's pretty old geographically, Jericho today is located west of the Jordan River, the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized, and north of the Dead Sea. And Jericho has become known today as the city of palm trees. Because supposedly, whether you're out walking or driving through the desert, you can't help but notice Jericho in its beautiful, green, life-giving oasis, right? And Jericho was built on what archaeologists call a tell. Now, a tell is a term that is used for sort of a raised mound marking the site of an ancient city. And so in ancient times, if you can imagine, houses were constructed of like piled up mud, lumps of clay pressed together, sun-dried bricks, etc., right? And all these mud structures over time would become wore down, right? I mean, whether the elements would, would take their toll... And so there weren't any dump trucks, (laughs) right, to just haul away the old city and, and build a new one. And so what they would do is they would, as best as they could, they would basically level the remains of the ancient city or the old building or the old part of town, and they would just build on top of it. And so if you can imagine a city that dates all the way back to the 9th century BC, I mean, you can imagine that even by the time of Old Testament Jericho, there had already been several rebuildings of the city. And so I have a diagram this morning, a little picture that I want to show you that I think kind of helps show exactly what these walls of Jericho uh, look like. So we got that up there? We don't have that up there. There it is. Beautiful. All right. So this is so I I know most of you probably in your mind when you pictured this story as a child, you pictured one wall. Right. But but most archaeologists believe that there were actually two walls. Right. So this tell of Jericho, the city was surrounded by a great embankment. You kind of see it there with a stone retaining wall at its base the retaining wall is believed to have been about 12 feet high. So that's the lowest wall there, right right beside where the men stand, right? About 12 feet high. On top of that was a mud slash kind of brick wall that was about 20 feet high, okay? And then there was sort of this embankment that went up behind that wall to another wall built out of mud brick, and the base of that wall was supposedly around 46 feet above like where those men are standing so the base of the second wall 46 feet above where those men are standing so this is what would have stood at the time when god came to joshua and said the israelite army is to march seven times around The walls. Now, why do I say all that, right? I'm not really one who ever gives history lessons or lessons in archaeology. That's just not me, right? That's not my nature. But I tell you that for this reason. And if you don't grab one other thing out of my message this morning, I want you to grab this. And it ties in with the healing school and it ties in with where God is taking us as a congregation right now. But I just want you to hear this, and that's this. What seems impossible to men is possible with God. If you get nothing else out of this sermon this morning, I want you to get that. And maybe that would be a good time to pull out your phone and tweet or text or send it out to somebody that you know needs to hear it. Because what is impossible with men is possible with God. And so that's where we begin our story this morning. We start in Joshua chapter 5, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 15. The part of the, this part of the Bible says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to the man and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, the man replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua, the Bible says, fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked this man, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. So the very first thing that the commander says is not, well, here's, you know, here's the plan, but rather, let's get, let's get everything in order here. So you, remove your, feet, remove your shoes from your feet, because right now you're standing in the very presence uh, of God's messenger, right? So to give you kind of a little context, we're at the end of the first year of the Israelites having moved into the promised land. And the Israelites are, big shocker here, starting to become less and less dependent on God. I know that's never a part of Israelite history, all right, but it is, right? I mean, they're constantly like just, so after crossing the Jordan, they're becoming self-sufficient. They're figuring out ways to to make the land produce crops for them. And, And basically, day by day by day, they're coming one step further and further and further away from having to rely on God at all. And so Joshua, to this point, had been a bold leader. I mean, Joshua had had some great accomplishments. But God immediately wanted to make it known that the point is not Joshua. The point was not the Israelites. Glory belongs to God alone. You see, the point wasn't the leper, right? The point was was God. God sends his messenger in the form of a man, a soldier, the Bible says, and, and he wants to deliver this message. He has this mission for Joshua. I mean, Joshua was God's servant. Joshua had been, as we talked about last week, a disciple of Moses. He had seen literally the hand of God before, but he was going to see it again. He was going to see it again. And so this messenger um, continues on. It says, then the Lord says to Joshua, see, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all of the armed men. Do this for six days. So six times. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing their trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on their trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout and then... The wall of the city will collapse, and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So I'm going to give you a little what we call extra-biblical material today, okay? Because some of what I'm going to give you right now, we don't actually have recorded in Scripture, okay? So I'm just kind of playing one of those, imagine if you were Joshua kind of deals, all right? because we don't know exactly what was going on inside the head of Joshua at this point. In fact, the Bible just kind of lays it out there that Joshua's immediate response was obedience, right? That he just immediately called together the army and said, hey, God has told me this, this is what we're going to do, and let's do it. And, and, that, and that was probably the case, okay? I'm not doubting anything that's written in Scripture, for sure. But I can, at the very least, imagine that two things might have threatened God's mission for Joshua and, and, and for the Israelites, and, and for, specifically for Joshua's leadership. And the reason that I can imagine these two things might have threatened it is because they are the same two things that have basically threatened every leader who has ever lived on planet Earth. They are the same two things that threaten God's mission for us. So God's got a mission for you. God's got a plan for you, right? But these two things might just be a threat towards that. And, and these two things are pride and insecurity. That's kind of funny, isn't it? It's kind of funny to mention those two things in the same sentence, pride, insecurity. I mean, they seem like two very different things. Pride, for instance, tells you that the people's job is to please you, right? While insecurity tells you that your job is to please the people. So it seems like those two things are kind of in conflict with one another. The two are very different, and yet I will say that there have been a number of times in in my ministry career where I have seen the two actually feed into one another. Out of our insecurity, sometimes we find ourselves being prideful, right, or vice versa. For the purpose of our time together this morning, I'd like to break down each of these two things. So the the first one is pride. I mean, the first threat to God's mission for us, and and most likely for Joshua as well, would have been pride. Solomon, in all of his wisdom, says this in Proverbs 16, verse 18. He says, pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. So did you hear that, church? Before a fall comes pride. In fact, I would say that if you looked back over your life and saw the times when you have fallen, you would see that there was at least an element of pride involved with that. Like Joshua, both of these things pose a credible threat to my ministry, to my accomplishing God's will for my life. I, like many of you, have from time to time gone to battle with both pride and insecurity. I've also had my fair share of falls. And if I look back at those falls, I would say, I would have to admit that at least some of that was due to personal pride. Now I had the opportunity on Wednesday to attend some leadership training um, through the United Methodist Church. And as a part of that training, I was asked to think about things that are associated with my current position that at least in the eyes of those whom I minister to, the congregation that I serve, might give me like some kind of power or authority as a Christian spiritual leader. And so as I began to jot things down, I actually began to think, man, there's actually... Some, some things here. Like, there's some stuff. like Because if you just met me on the street like and said, Matt, what makes you so special? I would say, nothing, right? But then when I began to think about it, I'm like, you know, what? as a pastor, I, I'm, I'm kind of like put in a position where there, there's, that, there's that risk, right? Like, there's that chance. I actually came up with nine things, and they're this. The first is my relationship with Almighty God. Not to say that it's anything special, but to say that sometimes the congregation looks at me as a pastor as being some kind of like spiritual giant, Right? which for those of you that know me know that's not true at all, but, but that's kind of the way that I'm looked at. Another is my calling as a pastor, right? Just the fact, oh, well, he's called by God, right? Reality is we all are, but, but you know what I mean? My platform, right? Not the literal platform, but my platform as a preacher and a teacher, like the fact that I get to come up here on Sunday and kind of say what I think, right? my opportunity to to be a visionary or at least be on a team of visionaries for the church Uh, my invitation to various tables in the community my relationships uh, with any number of people in the community right like when you're a pastor of a church you know a lot of people and by extension you know a lot of people who know a lot of people right Uh, my training as a professional oh well you've been to college you've been to seminary right My role as a godly father and husband sometimes gives me that, like, people think. Again, this is not necessarily true, but people will look at me and they will say, oh, well, you, your family's so, you know, your kids are so well-behaved and whatever and everything's so, you know, and your marriage is so nice, she's so cute, you're so, you know, and it's like, okay, whatever. And then, of course, the three that make the most sense would be my charismatic personality, my sense of humor, and my all-around good looks, right? (laughs) Why is everyone laughing? Um... Listen, church. I share this list with you because each of these things, if not if I'm not careful, they can lead to pride and they can lead to my ego swelling, right? Becoming inflated, and ultimately they can lead to my downfall. And each of you, I would encourage you, like go home. This was a good exercise. Like go home and write down the things in your life that give you a status of like authority or power or or leadership over people, right? And so as I began to think about this, I thought about the wise words of Uncle Ben, who would have said to a young Peter Parker, with great power comes great responsibility, right? But it's true. I need to be careful not to abuse the power I have because of the role that I am in. If I'm not careful, pride will make its way into my life. Pride will make its way into my family life, into my ministry, right? That's just natural. It just happens. A person of Joshua's position was no doubt at risk. I mean, we're kidding ourselves if we say he wasn't. I mean, Joshua Joshua was called by God. He was a leader of God's chosen people. Think about that. He was the commander of the Israelite army. I mean, no doubt there were people who looked up to Joshua. There were probably people who all the time were pulling Joshua aside and saying, Joshua, (laughs) you're amazing, right? I mean, think about that. And so he had to keep his pride in check. So how did Joshua keep that pride in check? Well, I'll tell you. Although Joshua was positioned as Israel's leader, he was still subordinate to God, right? I mean, he still saw God as the supreme leader, the absolute leader. Awe and respect are the responses that are due to our holy God. Now, unfortunately, we live in a day, we live in a time, we live in a culture where God's not getting that respect, right? I mean, if anything, God's just kind of getting laughed off the stage. But Joshua knew that God alone deserved all the glory and all the honor and all his respect. And we can show respect for God by our attitudes and our actions. We should recognize God's power, God's authority and deep love, and our actions should reflect that attitude before others. I mean, respect for God is just as important today, if not more important than it even was in Joshua's day. We are the called, chosen people of God, and we must be quick to give God all the glory and all the honor and all the respect that is due Him. We must humble ourselves before the Lord. Give God the praise that is due his name. And and listen, here's the way we do that. We have to be quick to take that spotlight when it kind of subtly makes its way onto us. We have to just kind of reach up and eh, redirect that spotlight real quickly to someone else. Real quickly. One of the reasons the next generation is leaving the institutionalized church is that they don't really see the church as an authentic community of faith. We as Christians, and particularly we as Christian leaders, we can help our cause by being real, by reminding people of our own humanity, our own flesh, our own weakness, and there's a whole lot of it. I mean, there have been times when church members have said things to me that, that make me very uncomfortable. And so let me explain that for a second because that sounds weird. But church members have said things to me like, well, since you have a direct connection with the Lord, right? Like, I mean, I'll get that. It's almost like a Catholic kind of thing, right? Like people will text me and they'll be like, hey, Matt, since, you know, you have that direct line with God, can you pray for me? And it's like, holy cow, you got the same line I got, right? We're both paying $9.95 a month, right? <laughs> Or or people say something like, hey, well, since you know everything in the Bible, and I'm like, right, like, man, I wish, right? I mean, my response is usually a belly laugh. I mean, I don't know everything. And listen, any pastor who tells you he does is lying, right? Probably out of insecurity and pride. I mean, there's nothing special about me, and there's no direct connection, at least not any more than there is with any of the rest of you. In fact, in 1 Peter 2, 9, Peter says, but you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. What he's saying is that you're all priests, right? We are the priesthood of believers, We, not me, we are God's chosen people. We are all priests, we are all pastors, we are all missionaries, and we are all evangelists in our own right. So pride. The second threat to God's mission for us is insecurity. I mean, just as though there were those who sang Joshua's praises, there was no doubt those who were questioning his every move. Raise your hand if you've ever had someone in your job or your vocation or or your life that questioned everything you did. Okay, yeah, there you go. All right right? What if Joshua, though, had cared more about what people thought than he did about God and what God was leading him to do? Man, this story might look very different. Insecurity, like pride, poses a great threat to our leadership. I mean, this was no doubt the case for Joshua, and the same is true for us. God has a mission for us. More than that, God has healing and God has hope for us. Not only does God have these things for us, but he wants to use us as the vehicles to take healing and hope to others, right? But what happens if I become consumed by what others think of me? What happens if, if, if I allow myself to get caught up in, in people pleasing? What if we allow our insecurities to shut us down and shut us up? What are the blessings of God that we're going to miss out on? What are the blessings of God that other people are going to miss out on because we allowed God to be shut down? The solution to the problem of insecurity is, is really just a correct view of who God is and who we are in relationship to him. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Ephesians 2.10. He says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, here's the deal, church. You, me, we belong to God. We are His workmanship. We are wonderfully made, fearfully made. I think, Brenda, you said that, right? Fearfully and wonderfully made. That's who I am, right? We are made in His image. We are made for his purpose. To help us overcome insecurity, we, we have to refocus our attention on that which matters most to God. In Philippians 4 Paul urges the believers there. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, then think about those things. Guess what? If we will put our minds more on those things and less on what others think of us, man, What could we do? So I want to kind of turn the bus around and go back to the first five minutes of my message and remind us about the walls, right? And my question for you this morning is, what are your walls? What is your Jericho? What is your Jericho? I mean, what is that thing in your life that God wants to help you overcome, that God wants to help you overcome? Conquer? What is that thing in your life that God wants those walls to just come tumbling down? And everybody's here. Everybody here has one. At least one. There's something. For some of us, maybe it's our financial situation. For others of us, it's familial dysfunction. For others of us, God wants to help us overcome our physical limitations that maybe are due to a a disease or a disorder. For others, it is addiction to something, whether it be food, technology, pornography, gambling, drugs, alcohol, you name it. For others of us, it may be issues that stem directly from our pride and insecurity. Things that we've already talked about in great detail this morning. But whatever the case may be, once we have identified our Jericho, we have to surrender it to Almighty God. I mean, perhaps for our own benefit, we need to take whatever that thing is that represents our Jericho, and we just need to stand in our living room and literally walk around that thing seven times. And please walk like this, okay? (laughs) I mean, what is it? Right? Like, What is that thing in your life that has just absolutely put up a 46-foot barricade between you and freedom? And that abundant life. I mean, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life. Yes, but I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Wow. That's where I want to live. So what is it? March around that which you're addicted to. March around the stack of bills. March around your spouse. Right? I mean, how funny would that look? Honey, just stand still for a second. What are you doing, dear? Nothing. Just walking. Getting my steps in. My Fitbits reading them, right? (laughs) Yeah, don't tell them. (laughs) You're my Jericho, baby. (laughs) That's not a line that's going to lead anywhere good, right? (laughs) But it's time for those walls to come down, right? Understand this, though. You are not going to be able to bring them down by your own power. Amen? Okay, half the room still believes that we're going to bring them down by our own power. And listen, statistically speaking, that's probably true, right? But you're not. We can't bring them down by our own power. Remember what I said in the beginning. What is impossible with men is possible with God. And so here's the deal. Our band's going to go ahead and come up, or whoever's coming up is going to come up to, to play. And, and we've got people here who graduated the healing school. We've got people here who love to pray with people. We've got people here who just love people. We've got people who just like to stand up front and look pretty. And they're all going to make their way up front right now. Right now. You're going to do it right now. Get positioned so they can see you while they're sitting. Right? And, and here's the deal. These are loving, caring, and compassionate people. And this morning, they would love nothing more. Truly, they love this. I know you think, oh, it's a job. No, it's not. They love this. They would love nothing more than to stand beside you and to pray with you. They want to come alongside of you and stand against that which is prohibiting you from living in complete and total freedom. They want to come alongside of you in agreement with you. And here's the deal, church. We already have our marching orders. Right? Like God's already given them to us. And so now we just need to respond.